frustrating things for those who don't get worked up about the supposed crisis of quote, big tech censorship, and I am one of them, is that discussing content moderation can quickly devolve into a game of whack-a-mole. The people who trade in loose references to Orwell and Kafka are always finding new cases to twist and new studies to misconstrue. Even the blocking of the GOP spammy fundraising emails is now a cause for martyrdom. That said, I think the big tech censorship crowd tends to rally around two main cases. One is the slowed spread on Twitter and Facebook of a New York Post story about Hunter Biden's laptop. But I'd describe that case like this. Two edge providers wary of Russian election interference took a cautious approach to a piece of news fed to a news outlet directly by the Trump administration. Further, that news story got wide circulation anyway. Did Twitter and Facebook handle that case? Well, not really, but 1984, it was not. The other case is the decision by Apple, Google, and Amazon in the wake of the January 6th riot at the Capitol to shut the social media platform Parler out of the iStore, Google Play, and Amazon Web Services. For reasons we'll probably get into, I don't think this is a compelling case of big tech censorship either. But of the two cases, I think it is certainly the more interesting one. You have a cloud service, a provider further down the stack, booting an entire platform. What's more, you could argue that while Parler was a hot product at the time, it has struggled ever since to regain its footing in the social media market. We don't know the counterfactual, and obviously new competitors such as Getter and Truth Social have popped up. But what's clear is that unlike in the case of the Hunter Biden story, which arguably got more attention for having been suppressed, content moderation did not redound to Parler's ultimate benefit. So what's going on these days at Parler? What sets that platform apart? And why should I worry more about big tech censorship? We've got the perfect person here to answer all these questions. This is the Tech Policy Podcast. I am Corbin Barthold. I'm joined today by Amy Peacock, Parler's Chief Policy Officer. Also with us once again is Tech Freedom's Free Speech Council, Ari Cohn. Amy, it's so great to have you on. Thanks for having me on. And Ari, welcome to you too once again. Um, I'm a potted plant over here. I don't, I, I don't think anybody in your life has ever called you a potted plant. Um, I, I, I don't believe it. Amy, uh, as I um, said to you when we invited you on, I'm happy for purposes of our discussion to mostly put aside legal questions of you know, what platforms have a right to do and try to focus, I, I will not stick to this entirely, but to focus on what they should do. Um, we can talk, in other words, about whether and how platforms should pursue uh, the spirit of the First Amendment, as I've heard it put. I think that's a really slippery concept, and I'm sure we'll get into that, but, but there it is. 
Uh, and in that regard, it seems like a good place to start, I hate to admit, is Elon Musk. Uh, I can't believe I'm bringing him up on the show again, uh, but uh, he has said he's a free speech absolutist and that he wants to make Twitter more uh, sort of free speechy to maybe use an old Colbert Rapport throwback type word. Um, you mentioned to me in the lead up that you have a... a to doing this episode that you have a vision for content moderation that differs from his. And my first reaction to that is I'm impressed you even have a beat on really what he's saying because he's been kind of all over the place. But uh, why don't we start, I'd love to hear sort of where you think he wants to bring things and how your vision is uh, different. Well, obviously uh, he intends to have more freedom of expression on Twitter and I, think he's earnest in that. And I do think, of course, being at Parler where we do have a content moderation policy that is in the spirit of the First Amendment, you know, which we can talk about, I would think that it's a positive direction for Twitter if it happens. Um, that being said, it is a little bit difficult to understand exactly what he means. And so take everything here with a grain of salt. This is my interpretation and I will you know, give you my reasons for it. But uh, he said a couple of things that actually sort of flesh out what he means by more free speech. Aside from some concrete examples, the most recent concrete example that we could point to is that he thinks Twitter got the banning of Jordan Peterson wrong. But we've also seen the fact that he says he would be open to bringing former President Trump back to Twitter and other concretes of the like. So we know those things, right? Uh, but the, in terms of broader, what you might call rules, not really principles, I would say, but rules, he has talked about a guideline, a rough guideline of making approximately 10% of liberals at the most extreme upset and 10% of conservatives. So it's sort of a quantitative standard that if you are making an equal number of people on the left and people on the right upset, that therefore you are doing things right. And I believe he may have gotten that from Lex Friedman, with whom he's had a number of discussions. Uh, I think Lex Friedman suggested it, and he thought that that was a good idea. On, on my view, you should be making these decisions not based on any sort of quantitative standard. That's a version of the old fallacy of appeal to the crowd in, in a certain way, or, you know, certain it depends how you classify your fallacies, but some say it's an appeal to authority quantitative. But, you know, whether you're doing things right isn't going to be based on whether everybody votes a certain way or not. It's going to be something substantive. So I would not make my standard quantitative. It may turn out that if you are doing this right, that you're going to end up making an equal number, some small percentage of people on the left and people on the right, so to speak, upset, but that would not be my standard. Um, so that's one, again, you know, this is not um, that I think that he's going to be doing something bad. I think he's going to be doing something good. I just think it would be better if even in his own mind, he had more of a principled description of what he wants to do. And, you know, again, we can talk about that with the spirit of the First Amendment discussion in a minute. Um, but, you know, if, if he's looking at these standards explicitly that 
are wrong, that don't really give you substantive guidance, I think it, it's going to not necessarily um, be as good as it could be. That, that's really my concern. Uh, so that's one thing, the quantitative standard. And then the second thing is he's spoken about wanting to hew close to the law. So if it's legal speech, then it would be permitted. And if it's illegal, it wouldn't. And so you would ask him questions like, uh, what about various countries in the EU? In Germany, for example, and in other countries, they have so-called anti-hate speech laws. And so does that mean if, you know, United States were to pass an anti-hate speech law, which you can tell certain people, at least in this administration, would be happy to clamp down on you know, some subspecies of what they would call hate speech or disinformation. You know, if suddenly a law is passed and it, you know, outlaws some form of disinformation or some form of hate speech, however we define that, would Musk just roll over and say, okay, law is law. That's what we know in the field of legal philosophy as legal positivism, where you just say, whatever is law is law, and we're just going to follow that. I'm hoping that Musk really doesn't mean that. And I think if I were to have a discussion with him and sort of press him on this, maybe he would disagree. But at the same time, I had read a couple months ago, I think, that he had welcomed to his, uh, you know, I think the Tesla factory in Austin, uh, someone from the EU, where they were talking about certain sort of compromises that they had reached with respect to, um, you know, some new regulations of social media. And even though they were vaguely worded, he was welcoming of it. And, I, you know, so I'm concerned that he's going to have too much respect for the law, where I would think the actual proper approach, even if you're going to obey the law, would be to explicitly point out the places where the law is wrong at the very least. So those are my, very, I mean, they're nitpicky, right? These are nitpicky differences. But I do think that if you are keeping these things in your mind, you're doing what some people might call in this sort of context, double entry bookkeeping, that what you're going to end up doing in practice is going to be better and truer to the ideal of allowing freedom of expression than if you weren't as nitpicky as I am. I think that that last point really hits on something that, you know, whatever failings, uh, a platform like Twitter might have uh, in its content moderation. Twitter's actually been pretty good about going toe to toe with governments when the government uh, tries to step in. And they just filed a, a lawsuit, I think, in India um, about uh, so, you know some of the more repressive policies there. Um, so you know there, there there has to be a good balance there. I think you're exactly right about that. But you know, just every time I have one of these conversations, I think to myself that I really. I think I give Elon Musk a little bit more of a gentle reading than a lot of people do. Uh, the guy is not a lawyer. The guy is not a First Amendment expert. I, I see him at his core as, as really trying to express overall philosophical ideas very inartfully and very all over the place. But I don't necessarily expect him to know the ins and outs and the technical details of how he would accomplish it. If, if, he, if the deal consummates, he's going to need to surround himself with people who are experts and who can help him really formulate his general broad ideas into something concrete, 
policy wise. And that that's going to be tough. Uh, and it's going to cost a lot of money. Um, but, you know, that I, I don't necessarily read him as a lot of people have as making very specific legal claims about what he's going to do. And I don't think that's particularly fair to him, uh, you know, whether or not you agree with him to kind of hold him to, you know, First Amendment lawyer standards of specificity. No, no. And, and I wouldn't. And so, you know, there's there was the preface back there, right, which was that it you can't tell exactly what he's saying. But given these couple things, this is where I would suggest he could refine his thinking more. I know he's capable. So, you know, now he may have a debate with me and say, no, I'm sorry, I'm in favor of the quantitative standard and here's why. And no, I'm in favor of legal positivism and here's why if we had the discussion. But I think it'd just be interesting to to push him in that direction. And of course, I happen to think I'm right. But um, no, I, I don't I don't think that he has spent uh, nearly as much time thinking about these things as he has all of the things that make it possible for SpaceX to uh, shoot up and then recycle these rockets and do all the amazing things that he's trying to do to get us to Mars and, and et cetera. Um, it, it's actually amazing that he is trying to take on this whole Twitter project at all. And like I said, I think he's doing it for the right reasons. And I think that overall the result is going to be better for Twitter if, if the deal goes through. So much interesting stuff there. The first thing I just want to note. Yeah. So um, it was an EU commissioner, Commissioner Breton um, came to his factory. And I got to say, I kind of feel like he kind of hoodwinked Elon into saying, oh, the Digital Services Act sounds great, um, which you guys are saying he has a good impulse in sort of the right direction. I think that's that's I agree with that. Um, it is kind of a testament, though, to why you even want your guy at the top maybe to be a little more informed so he doesn't go out and say the Digital Services Act is a great idea. It um, wasn't even, you know, reduced to paper in details at that point yet, as far as I know. Um Maybe he's got some 4D chess move of diplomacy he's he's pursuing. Right, sure, sure. Um, but one thing that that you bring up that I want to tap into, there's so many different directions, good directions I could go from, from your answer, but um, you mentioned, say, the Jordan Peterson case. So we talk about content moderation, and when you talk about an individual case, uh, there's you can get a real toehold on the context and start discussing things al almost like a legal case. So... I think the the Elliot Page situation and the whole dead naming situation, um, we can talk about concrete factors. And I come out at least uh, certainly when a public figure is at stake, very sympathetic to um, the Elon Musk position or the Jordan Peterson position or whatever you want to call it. You've, you've got several problems. Public figures should understand that they're going to be caught in the hurly burly of speech. And as far as the insults that fly on Twitter, uh, my priors would tell me that somebody using your old name is pretty tame compared to the, some of the stuff that gets said out there. The whole point is that you, um, there's a difference between speech and your opinion and directing hate towards somebody. And I find that to be a very questionable principle that's very much sort of liberals in San Francisco using their priors to treat uh, dead naming as this really heinous thing, whereas you know somebody could call me a white supremacist or a Nazi or a communist or a Maoist, 
Um, and none of those things, you know, you can call me or anyone else on, on any, any of those names and that's fine. So why is there that distinction? So you can see, and even if you can agree with me or disagree with me on these factors, but there it is, it's a concrete discussion of what we're weighing. And I get that. So actually I'm kind of uh, more sympathetic maybe to uh, an absence of theory here. Because the moment that we move up to this next level of like the spirit of the First Amendment and a grand unified theory of how you do content moderation, um, I think we lose all of those toeholds. And you mentioned legal positivism. Let me shift to a different one, logical positivism. You know, and their whole thing, what, and I, I know you're the perfect person for me to get all weird and philosophical with. So I'm sure you'll hang with me here. Uh, what was their whole project? You know, it was like, well, we're, nothing uh, spoken or written makes any sense unless it can be verified as true or false. And one of the huge problems they had was that if you try to drill down into individual statements, it just doesn't work because any individual statement can't be verified as true or false because it exists within a wider web of knowledge. You can't verify as true or false most statements without having an understanding of whatever, the whole body of science behind it or the whole body of politics. And I find content moderation to be kind of similar. Um, an individual post, it's very hard for us to have a discussion about how it fits within like the spirit of the first amendment when the whole issue is gonna be, what is a threat? What is harassment? What is targeted hate? Uh, and to answer any of those questions, we have to dive down and get into that individual nitty gritty that I was just discussing. So uh, I'll toss it back to you. I mean, reading Parler's uh, content moderation principles, I think I've read the most updated ones. I see it as very much at that level of theory and you're talking at me at this level of theory and uh, I have a certain skepticism of that. So um, I, I don't know if I need a more pinpointed question or if you just have a reaction to everything I just said. Sure, but so with the spirit of the First Amendment, I see United States First Amendment as tracking pretty close to, you can say it so long as it's not a violation of somebody else's rights to say it. So it's not a threat, it's not incitement, it's not fraud, it's not IP theft, it's not defamation, right? So um, those would be things that are rights violations. So, it, it, and in you know my ideal, you would not prohibit something from being said on a platform unless it constituted a violation of somebody else's rights. Now, you could say that on a social media platform, you could go a little bit more broadly than our First Amendment jurisprudence would with respect to threats and incitement. Um, you know, you, we could nitpick about fighting words and things like, you know, how imminent and is, is it really realistic that these two are going to duke it out? And, you know, those sorts of things. You might end up erring on the side of removing more threatening and inciting speech than not. And that would be consistent with, you know, what is the goal of a social media platform? The goal of a social media platform would be for people to be able to express themselves and share ideas and information with each other and have productive discussions. So anything that smacks of, you know, again, drawing back to the old logical fallacies, uh, if it smacks of what Aristotle called argumentum ad baculum, the appeal to the walking stick, appeal to force, right? Um, 
any force is going to stop thinking. It's going to stop the conversation. If it's just about threats, you're not, it, you know, you're not persuading anybody. You're not going to change anybody's mind. Instead, you're just going to cow them into submission. So none of that is part of a productive conversation. Um, with respect to so-called hate speech, it's a whole different ball game, right? Because hate, really, what is hate? It's an emotion. And you know, what's the substance behind the emotion? That's always the more interesting thing. Sometimes it's racism. Sometimes it's just anger of some kind that doesn't have as much substance as as we might like, et cetera. Um, But what really is productive with respect to, you know, for for instance, eliminating racism from our culture, you know, eliminating sexism from our culture, encouraging people to understand uh, people who choose to transition to a different gender. You know, what what is the most productive way to allow this? Is it to ban all hate speech from discussions? Or is it perhaps to allow that speech and also allow counter speech? That's at least the argument of Nadine Strawson Uh, Nadine Strawson is somebody who I've drawn upon quite a bit in thinking about and formulating the guidelines from Parler. She was the former head of the ACLU and does quite a bit of uh, speaking about free speech. She sees herself as liberal Democrat, I believe, but she's been very much in the camp of, you know, Bill Maher and other people who have come out in favor of more free expression, even if that means allowing speech that is in some cases, abhorrent. Um, So I would think that allowing that is more productive as a conversation. So what do you do in the spirit of the First Amendment? You would allow on your platform, I believe, anything that is not a violation of somebody else's rights. But at the same time, I think the First Amendment also embraces freedom of association. And clearly, you should be free to mute or block other people, right? So those tools are are very important to be able to do that. There's a lot of people who will on social media say that if you block them, you are censoring, but of course you're not because you're just refusing to associate with them. Uh, Similarly, I believe in, and in parlor, we do offer, uh, I believe in offering a filter that a user can choose to have on or have off that could filter out certain types of speech that they don't want to see in their feed systematically. So maybe they don't want to block a particular user. They don't want to mute a particular user, but they would like to have at least some sort of interstitial put in front of either nudie photos, right? You know, because nudity is allowed under the First Amendment, but on Parler, we put it behind an NSFW interstitial. And similarly, with respect to what many people call so-called hate speech, but I like to describe it more objectively as attacks on the basis of race, sex, sexual orientation, sexual identity, uh, religion, et cetera. So it's just, it, it, but it just seems to me like um, while a lot of those principles, you know, at, at, at a sufficiently high level of generality, I certainly like them and agree with them. And I think most people do kind of all the questions are still to be answered. So you talk about the first amendment and it's very broad as 
it should be because I don't want the government setting these rules. And you talk about association. Yeah, I mean, what's what's the big end game, right? The big end game is to prevent Orwell's 1984 from becoming reality uh, in the invasion of privacy aspect and in the thought control and clamp down on expression aspects as well, right? Right. So that's the government, uh, you know, keeping the government from controlling what can and, not be, uh, can and cannot be said, because once the government is setting those rules, um, it's sort of game over because that covers the whole playing field. You go down a single level and um, it, I, I think it gets much more complicated because different platforms can set different rules. You may see the speech environment as not any individual platform, but the whole internet. And if each platform is setting its rules, and as you said, it's, um, you know, we may want to go a little bit further than the First Amendment in moderating. And it's like, to my mind, it's kind of, so yeah, the game is kind of up. Uh, Eric Greitens, a candidate for Senate, recently posted a, a, an ad in which he, you know, talked about rhino hunting, or to use another example, uh, Steve Bannon got banned from Twitter because he was saying that Christopher Ray, the FBI director, and, and Dr. Fauci's heads should be put on pikes outside uh, the White House. And in each of those cases, is that uh, is that rhetoric? Is that heated rhetoric? Is that a real threat? Um, or if uh, the Oath Keepers are organizing on one's platform and they're not yet, you know, planning to like raid the Capitol. They're just sort of ginning each other up and organizing and recruiting members. And they're getting right up to the point where they're going to take action to whatever it is or the Patriot Front. You know, these are not issues of um, I block it from my feed so I don't have to see it. It's a matter of the platform hosting these things. And so as soon as you say it's not literally the First Amendment, we need to figure out how to draw the lines. And then it immediately becomes a question not of, um, we're the free speech people and they're not, uh, which is this dichotomy that we often get, but rather case by case determinations based on people's priors and experience and culture and judgment and all the things that they bring into these kind of decisions of, of where the lines are and which posts could, you know, won't fly and which ones will. Um, so it, it just all seems a little more complicated and difficult to me. I, well, I I, if, if you stick to things like incitement to violence or threats, then it's less complicated, certainly, than if you talk about things like hate or harassment, right? Um, but that is the nature of anything that we do in law. And, you know, this is really, a, you know, sort of an analogous exercise to what is done in law every single day, which is to make these judgment calls about real cases, concrete cases with all sorts of rich fact scenarios and things. And somebody has to make that call. And then you want to make it as objectively as possible. At Parler, we have a jury composed of experienced users of the platform. And they undergo regular training sessions and they go through concrete examples. And no, it is never perfect, but all of it is an attempt to objectively apply principles within the context and we you know, allow for appeals and et cetera. And we do the very best that we can with the rules that are 
clear and objective in terms of their principle and, and as best as we can in the application. Every system of human rules is going to be necessarily imperfect, but I think that if you stick to principles where you can reduce what you're talking about to something you can point to in the world and say, okay, you know, the, the putting it head on a spike. I mean, it seems pretty clear that you're not talking about, oh, I think I want to try to convince Fauci that he was wrong to do anything that would encourage, you know, the uh, pushing of these vaccinations on people or whatever it was that, you know, Bannon is, I think, legitimately angry at Fauci about um, when you're getting to the point of talking about doing physical harm to people, then you could say at that point, at least you've made a departure away from productive discussion about the issues. Yeah, it just, it strikes me. It was interesting, Amy, that you um, talked about things like muting and blocking as associational. Um, and that kind of just speaks to the levels of generality because you also get to, you know, the fact where, you know, the platforms say um, it's associational when we ban people. Uh, and then it's sure. also associational on a lower level. It all just strikes me as like how necessary something like the blue sky project ends up being in these kinds of situations in the blue sky project sure but then you know so my question with blue sky is are they going to build in to their technology certain biases towards anti-hate speech rules and things like that so it's really not what they say they're offering where you actually get to to choose, right? So, I, I, no, I'm I'm for freedom of association, of course, across the board. And sure. I think the, the issue today that you know one of the things that we're confronting is that we are not living in a free market generally. Um, and so, I think that the you know you've heard of the state action theory, I assume. Corbin, uh, this is from Rubenfeld and Ramaswamy have been bringing it out here. And Ari laughs because I've, I've spoken about it, I think, on that panel with him before. But um, I think that there's a real issue here where you've got the social media platforms doing actions for which they've been granted legal immunity under Section 230, and perhaps at least sometimes doing them at the behest of government officials. So, you know, let's give you an example uh, most recently of, of something that procedurally strikes me as wrong. You may have seen the letter that was made public by Brendan Carr of the FCC, where he calls on Apple and Google to remove TikTok completely from their app stores. And he's given them until, as we're recording this tomorrow, I guess, to, um, <laughs> you know, respond, yeah, either yeah. they're supposed to remove it or they're supposed to explain. And of course, what they're supposed to explain is very loaded in the sense of if they give the wrong answer, suddenly they might be subjected to legal action of various kinds. But this is not being done in a court. There's not a court order. There's no presentation of evidence that you could cross-examine or test for admissibility. Um, you know, there's nothing, there's no proper procedure at all. What there is, is this letter in which Carr cites a report, talks about a whole bunch of authorities in the government and otherwise who agree that TikTok has these horrible connections to China and all your information is going to the Communist Party, and then basically says, take it down or write us letters talking about things that we can go after you with if we want to have a great Fourth of July weekend. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's, this- that's what it was, right? So there's something wrong, I think, with that. And, and you know, I was pointing out, we did a Substack on Parlor where I wrote this, but, um, you know, the irony of here we are, we're about to go into this celebration of Independence Day of what I think is, you know, has been in world history, the best and freest country in the history of the world. And these two guys at the head of these companies, and again, Apple deplatformed us, and I've got my disagreements probably with the CEOs of both of these companies, but, you know, they're productive, they're successful. And what are they spending their Independence Day weekend doing? They're deciding what they're going to do in the face of these demands that are just thrown out there at them publicly with no proper procedure at all. We're in this situation where there's what I would call non-objective law all over the place that's facing these guys. And every politician at every level of government and all of the alphabet agencies and stuff, they have their different levers that they can push And all of them are pushing it in the way to do their bidding. Um, And, you know, what what are they doing? The the social media companies, I think, in a lot of cases are complying, right? Jen Psaki getting up in front of everybody and saying, we tell Facebook what is misinformation, right? It's concerning. So a few things to unpack here. First of all, Brendan Carr has no authority to make uh, these platforms or the Apple or Google do absolutely anything. He's writing words on a piece of paper and sending it off. And that's what a lot of these letters are. We should be clear that under the law, you can certainly disagree that this is how it should be. But the the rule is if they if they if the threat is sort of empty jawboning, um, it does not become state action if the platform then does the thing. It has to be basically where they feel they have no choice under the law. Um, they still, nonetheless, you are correct. There's this thing where like Jen Psaki says, we're directing material to Facebook and then Facebook as best we can tell is like really taking that seriously and taking stuff down. I would put it to you that what you have there and we're probably you and I on the same page here is this big disinfo. There's this axis of cultural, um, mainly left-wing types who it's the nexus of, you know, people at the uh, uh, Aspen Institute or uh, Harvard or, um, you know, the people who love the fact checking have the similar values as the people who are working in the government, who have the similar values as people who are at Twitter in San Francisco. So they're all kind of on the same page. And as a result, when Jen Pitsaki, it's actually really stupid of her to do that because, um whether she realizes it or not, you know, the people in Silicon Valley are closer to her than um, they might otherwise be. And when she gets up and says what she says, it creates this horrible, like, it's terrible that there's this government job owning. As you say, it creates this sort of um, feeling of corruption or pressure. And um, that's really unfortunate. But the fact that they listen is because the people in the room share similar priors to Jen Psaki. You'll notice when the government says things about um, whatever, uh, abortion or voting rights, corporations are perfectly capable of saying, shove it. Uh, So we know that they're not like intimidated or cowed into action. They're already kind of on the same page as these people. Um, So what I end up believing is that what matters is getting people with a wide range of priors into the room where these decisions at platforms get made. Uh, and trying 
thereby to sort of restore some trust in the process. Because to harken back to an earlier point, I mean, I was talking about how these things are case by case. And you actually agree, you use the word, it takes judgment. Like I don't actually mm -hmm. buy this notion that there's some objective standard you can screw it to and we're the objective people and they're not. Like these are judgment cases and they're difficult and there's always edge cases. And you're always asking, well, what is harassment? Is Jordan Peterson harassing Elliot Page? And to me, I'm like, oh no, clearly not. But people with different priors are gonna look at that and go, no, no, that's clearly harassment. That's targeted hate or whatever. Um, so I, I, I totally hear you. I like in the sense of like, I object to the government um, trying to, to work the refs like this, but I, maybe I don't quite share your alarm. And then I'll, my final point I'll wrap up is maybe part of that is I think you and I have a, have, have a premise that we don't share, which is that when I look at the internet, I actually still see a really good free speech environment. I actually still see a place where there's lots of different opportunities to get your message out. And if you don't like this place, you can go to that place. And things like Substack and Rumble are thriving. Um, and, and maybe you and I just don't see eye to eye on that part of it. That could be part of the divide here. Yeah, I, I think that because it's not a fully free market, that the atmosphere out there is also not as free. Um, so, uh, you know, and especially now with the fact that some of these platforms are being threatened with things like antitrust to break them up, um, you know, the repeal of section 230, and that's a whole other thing, because I think the principle behind section 230 is correct, of course, that a private company that is presuming to offer just a platform for speech for users to generate content and put it out there into the world, certainly that platform should not be held legally liable as if they were themselves the publisher of that user-generated content. That principle is correct. Whether Section 230 is the right way to implement that principle, I think is an open question at least, but certainly we should not have politicians pretending that section 230 is a 100% gift because it's not, again, the principle behind it is correct, and that they can just threaten the platforms with repealing it and that really anything is up for grabs that you could amend section 230 in any way you want and it would be legitimate etc and that's the impression that i think politicians on both sides of the aisle have right um you know you have the people on the right wing they're very upset at the way that the immunity under section 230 is being exploited they would say by you know facebook and twitter and they think uh that those Platforms often act as publishers and often they're confused. You're either all a publisher or you're all a platform, right? There's a lot of confusion too, but they say, oh, repeal it. And then that's going to mean that, um, you know, basically they're going to have to never remove any speech from their platform again or something, right? Or that they're going to be held liable for everything and it's just going to destroy everything. And I don't think that's true. I think it would be very bumpy if they repealed Section 230 for a while. Uh, as a smaller platform without the legal budget and resources of the bigger platforms, we would probably tend to suffer more in such an environment, et cetera. But I, you know, I don't think that, certainly they don't have the right to completely strip away that principle because the, the principle is correct. Um, 
you know, and, and then any of the other evils that they think that they're going to visit upon these platforms. Um, you know, if, if they remove, if they were to remove TikTok from the Apple and Google store uh, because of pressure from government, that would be in effect government giving a competitive advantage in the market to competitors of, of TikTok, right? So the whole thing to me is, is a big mess. I think government has too much power and that combined with at least the current implementation of the principle behind section 230 in that rule, there, there's just too much opportunity to make this really not a free market for social media platforms. So I'm going to jump right over the publisher platform distinction. Everybody take a drink. We've covered that on other episodes. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah, sure. Um, th- I did, actually, this was a good segue to ask a question I, I had about Parler and what you guys are doing these days and whether you have um, any, what's the front-end moderation? Is there any kind of AI? Um, have you guys adopted like photo DNA for, for uh, like child sexual abuse material and those kinds of things? Um, or is it all kind of on the back end? And I ask that just because we bring up Section 230. And so like, what should a platform be responsible for? Um, and what's your view on that? I was just curious. Right. So you would say, apart from Section 230, you know, if we're talking about theoretically in the law, what should a platform, platform could no, be I'm held asking, resp- Sorry, sure. the first question is by far the more important. So what, okay. does, what does Parler do? Yeah, so, so Parler does use AI now. We do use AI as an, as an augment to our system. So uh, we do have um, scanning of images and we do also have scanning of text. With respect to scanning of text, the two that we focus on are of course, violent or inciting content. And then also uh, so-called hate speech for the purpose of, you know, within the parlor universe, that's for the purpose of offering what we call our trolling filter, which somebody can choose to turn on or off and remove what I called, you know, these attacks on the basis of sex, sexual orientation, race, sexual identity, religion, et cetera, those categories, because those attacks are again, fallacious, not part of a productive discussion. Let's give people tools to remove them. Um, so we do use that on the front end. Um, it, it, you know, it does cause issues because as we talked about earlier, every individual piece of content doesn't arise in a vacuum. There's a whole context around it. So for instance, uh, you know, given the topic that we're on right now, one of the funniest mistakes that the AI has made is to remove the phrase kill section 230 from the platform. Um, so uh, that's always a good one, right? Um, anyway, so it does make mistakes. And so in addition to that, we have human review and, and opportunities for it to appeal, et cetera. All of these tools are imperfect, but if you are doing your conscientious best to implement your guidelines and make it scalable, these days, often you're going to go for some sort of AI augmentation in your system. You know, I, there are a few things that that I will find more agreement on with people of all different stripes than the fact that the government should just shove it in the first place. Um, you know, the whether it's Fox News, Parler, Facebook, Twitter, no matter who, um, to me, the idea that the government would uh, demand that those entities or people explain 
uh, their First Amendment protected activity is, is completely anathema. And I can't say that often enough, uh, but I think more broadly, uh, and we were talking about how both sides are using the wedge of 230 to kind of coerce platforms into doing what they want under the threat of, uh, you know, repealing or reforming Section 230. Uh, I think if there's anything that is clear is that we are going to get nowhere good by a Congress that has demonstrably no idea what it's talking about when it comes to tech, trying to use regulation to coerce platforms into doing what they want. These people are absolutely clueless. You go back to Senator Blumenthal asking the Instagram executives if they're going to stop offering Finsta as a product, which is just an absurdly obtuse question. Uh, And to all these different hearings, whenever we do get the hearing, sometimes they just uh, dispense with that formality entirely. Uh, And they just, these people don't know what they're talking about. And they certainly don't have enough of a grasp to be meaningfully regulating. Uh, And and frankly, from my perspective, you know, personal opinion only, they should just stay the hell out entirely. What would happen then, right? So we have seen, maybe you've seen many ads placed in the New York Times, on LinkedIn, all over the place, where Facebook says, we welcome updated internet regulations. And so probably because a number of the legislators don't have their own ideas clearly formulated as to what would be the best, some some do, I'll probably argue with most of them and think most of them are wrong, the ones that do. Um, But in any event, uh, I think what we're most likely to get is something that Facebook wants. And then what would that achieve? I mean, first of all, it would go beyond what I think is a proper power of government to dictate, um, right? You know, again, I think the principle behind Section 230, the core principle is fine. But if you start talking about, okay, and you have to do this amount of reporting, and then you have to demonstrate this level of handling hate in particular, or maybe even certain types of disinformation, all these things could make it into Section 230. And it would be a disaster. Hopefully, it would be rejected on First Amendment grounds, right? It would be challenged and, and, uh, you know, uh, eradicated. But it's, it's scary. And so often if the choice is, well, let's repeal Section 230 or let's amend it given the sort of bipartisan consensus that might be reached today with all of these people, I would think whatever they would do to amend Section 230 is not going to be an improvement. That would be my guess. Um, well, let me just this is a potentially inflammatory question, but there's a lot of stupid stuff going on on the Hill. I totally agree. A lot of their suggestions are not constitutional, um, but does it not give sort of ammunition to the cause if we have platforms that are allowing, um, you know, again, like extremist groups to organize or are not implementing photo DNA and like making sure that they're free of CSAM and that kind of stuff? No, so we should, uh, of course, look at what the platforms are doing. Again, if the platforms are knowingly or negligently allowing illegal conduct on the platforms, then, of course, you could say they're blameworthy. But that is something that they should be doing anyway. They would be accountable for any role that they could be held to have played in this. And and we're starting to even see, even with Section 230, 
we're starting to see Facebook, for example, be potentially held liable for any role that it's had in the proliferation of certain rights violating material. And it could be that some of the courts are becoming more open to the narrower interpretation of Section 230 that Justice Clarence Thomas has called for multiple times. To me, that would be the way forward with the current Section 230 is not to amend it in any way, but to start looking at the advice that Clarence Thomas has given in Malwarebytes versus Enigma and then the other subsequent statement that he gave. I forget the, the name of the case. Ari probably knows it. Um, but you know, he, he has given this advice multiple times, and I think it is valid and, and good advice to actually hold platforms accountable for the role that they play in propagating certain harms. And it could be, you know, if they are actually generating the content themselves, of course, because sometimes platforms do generate their own content, but it could be any sort of editing that they do, anything that they do to uh, magnify the reach of something or throttle it if that's, you know, shown that they actually did something and that somehow that redounded. You know, I, I take a, um, a different view than you, Corbin, about what happened with the Hunter Biden story. I think it was completely shut down, not just, oh, sort of slowed or whatever. And, you know, to this day, it remains an open question whether there's going to be a full investigation of what went on and whether the current occupant of the White House is compromised uh, because of the initial throttling of, of that story. So these, these things do have bigger consequences. I don't think we're at Orwell's 1984 yet, but we've certainly been moving in that direction. And, and under this current administration, we've seen a number of more moves in that direction from the Surgeon General, and then the DHS was going to have its sub- Department of Disinformation. And then, of course, they've even uh, increased our vocabulary, right? Because now we have disinformation, misinformation, and malinformation as well that we should all be concerned with. And then I think that uh, Kamala Harris has some special task force now, even though the DHS, you know, uh, sub-branch has been canceled. Kamala Harris is going to pick up the baton and do something with respect to certain types of disinformation that all of us can agree are terrible. And so they're going to get that little wedge in there. I am concerned about the continual march towards this. And so that's where, again, I'm, I'm nitpicky and I'm pointing things out. And I don't think that anybody who has to make a judgment call about a particular case is perfect. But if you are holding yourself to the best standards that you can to the best of your ability, you're going to do a lot better than if you give up an objective standard entirely. Well, I will say, um, you know, to the topic of narrowing Section 230 to make platforms responsible for the harms they cause, I mean, going through and looking at some of the material that was on Parler, if you look at like AWS's papers in the litigation, like it's some pretty rough stuff that actually could create lots of different kinds of legal liabilities. I mean, it's risky to say we do everything we can to be coextensive with the First Amendment precisely because a lot of this violent rhetoric and really grossly racist rhetoric and organization is right up against a line. I mean, the way I've heard it put, sure. that's really good. Now, is you're, you're this is, this is the thing. Line now, now I'm going to tell you, because you're discussing something that is the subject of ongoing litigation, 
I am not going to be able to fully answer you in the way that I should with respect to particulars. Okay. Um, there's a couple things, you know, to know, I mean, obviously the, the standard is kind of did the platform perform reasonably to the extent that they could. Right. Um, and so that's a very context laden question. Um, this content leading up to the sixth was all over the internet, not just on Parler. Parler was singled out because we were a target during those times. Um, and then in particular, of course, we were going to, we were rumored to potentially being offered, uh, you know, platform for former President Trump when he was banned from Twitter. So there, there was a lot of agenda from, you know, in, in what you have seen out there. Uh, what we do know is that content was everywhere. We know that a lot of organization of anything would best have been conducted on Facebook. And in fact, there were a number of Facebook groups, right? They had a group feature. Parler did not have a group feature. Uh, there was a report released in August of 2021, which nobody in the news made very much of, but it was from the FBI saying that there was no organization of whatever went on on January 6th online anywhere, much less on Parler. So in terms of saying Parler, you know, would be responsible or really any social media platform would have been responsible for what went on on January 6th, I, I, you know, I would not accept that. But I think the question goes, you know, does the platform, and fair, I won't press on the January 6th specific event, but, but does a platform care about whether such, you know, whatever, right now, as we sit here, forget January 6th, is Patriot Front on one's platform, and I'm not implying they're on yours, I have no idea. Um, right. But you have say Facebook where, um, you know, I actually saw in parlor, I was, I was wandering around parlor in prep for this. And there was some big thing on the right side, like recommended at me of, you know, threats against Clarence Thomas on, uh, Twitter. And you go there and you click the link and you actually dig into the tweets already been taken down. It got retweeted like four times. And they, so clearly they care. They want to take that down. Um, and if one is saying, well, we're, we're really, we're going to try and press it out to the First Amendment, then it doesn't really matter what's on Facebook or Twitter, right? Because they care. We know that they want to take that stuff down. Uh, and so if one platform is saying we allow such things and the other one is saying, well, we try to take them, take it down, it's no answer to say um, they didn't take it down fast enough if your own attitude is we're more open to that. Well, so I'm, I'm not I'm not clear based on some of what I've seen that there is the sort of AI scanning in advance going on on Twitter as there is on Parler. So on Parler, it doesn't matter who you say certain things about in a threatening manner. It's it's going to be flagged. Right. Um, and you have seen perhaps lately uh, libs of TikTok will point out a number of examples of a double standard where there were all sorts of threats that were kept up for quite a period of time. Maybe by the time you saw the article and you clicked on it, they finally took it down, but it maybe took, you know, publicizing it with an article finally to get it taken down. And it shouldn't be that way, right? You know, ideally these, I mean, if these are reported 
on Parler. We get through it as expeditiously as possible, but most of the time, these sorts of things are flagged in advance. And in fact, we have people on Parler complaining that things are over flagged. As I said, you know, the kill section 230 was a, a great example. Um, you had mentioned to me before the show that you wanted to talk privacy a bit, and I want to just give you an opportunity to pump up the value, you know, say, say oh, whatever right. you'd like to say on that. Oh, gosh. So these things are interconnected, right? Because the social media platforms today are not only the places where we speak and all sorts of information is disseminated, but often in the case of some of the bigger, more data intensive platforms, they are collecting all sorts of personal information about you. So when I think of the commingling of a big platform widely used like Facebook with government, governments, any governments around the world, you start to think that you're really starting to build an Orwell's 1984 if there is free uh, you know, passing of speech restrictions and also free, relatively free passing of information about users. I mean, you know, Brendan Carr was suspecting that, you know, TikTok's personal information about users is being given to the Communist Party. But here in the United States, we have something called the third party doctrine. And the third party doctrine has said since the 1970s that you and I, with respect to the information that we share to banks, phone companies, of course, now social media companies, all sorts of places, those are third parties. If we share information with them, then the government can obtain that information without a warrant. It has no Fourth Amendment protection. It's not considered a search simply because you've shared it for a limited purpose. And I happen to think this is wrong and unjustified. This has been a topic of the academic research that I did before I ever got into the world of social media. And I have a paper that's out there if people are interested in this topic where I talk about the origins of the third party doctrine. It originated in the context of government using secret agents to infiltrate criminal conspiracies. And as I mentioned, in the 1970s, that changed, early 1970s, that changed. You've heard of these cases called Smith and Miller. These are telephone and banking cases. These are the cases in which, for the first time, this doctrine was brought into the context of ordinary contracts between law-abiding citizens and service providers. And suddenly, you and I share information, and it no longer enjoys any Fourth Amendment protection. And to this day, even though we had the Carpenter v. U.S. decision, this information is up for grabs. And, and to me, it's very concerning, again, because Orwell's 1984 isn't just about thought control and speech control and news speak and all this. It's also about the tremendous invasion of privacy and what better way to invade people's privacy than via these devices that the Supreme Court has noted contains more personal information about us than uh, even our homes, a search of our homes might reveal. Uh, but this is the sort of thing that is open because of this doctrine. And I have a proposed solution to the doctrine, which not surprisingly entails just taking it back to its original scope. And I do that using a, um, you know, an observation about the common law of contract, which is that in all of the original 
third-party doctrine cases, these secret agent cases, what you were dealing with was an illegal contract, a criminal conspiracy. Part of that contract was to keep the information private. At common law, that entire thing would have been unenforceable. And so certainly in the secret agent cases, it was reasonable to say that there was no reasonable expectation of privacy uh, it, among all those co-conspirators because they were engaged in an illegal contract. Not the case in Smith and Miller, and we should have seen the Supreme Court uh, explain a lot more why they thought they were entitled to bring that same doctrine into the context of law-abiding citizens. So that's my spiel. Um, but that, you know, so that that little bit of theory I've, I've published in St. John's Law Review, I put it actually, you know, put, 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 you know, they put your link on a social media post and they'll put their blog or whatever. I put my law review article. Um, because I, I want to get this out there. And it really should have been, I think, before the court in Carpenter, and I tried to get that done, but a um, public interest law firm that had initially expressed interest in doing a brief with it backed out at the last minute. And so I ended up not doing anything there. So I'm hoping maybe Rosenau is this case that's coming up. Um, we'll have that, to stay, uh, stay tuned for that. Let's shift. Uh, yeah, so my last question for you, and then I'll, I'll definitely want to hear some final thoughts from both Ari and you, but um, Parler the product. Um, so I'm sure you could give us uh, some talk about the headwinds that Parler faces, you know, starting with the AWS event. And you're talking about how you see there are limits to a free market. And, and let's just put that aside. For, I, I don't, you know, I'm not going to argue with you about that uh, for the moment. Let's not get bogged down. Even if a product faces headwinds, you still have to work on your product and, and bring it out to market and do the best you can to attract users. So putting that all aside, um, you know, what gets you excited about Parler right now? Like, why should we be on Parler? What are you guys doing? Um, because it seems to me um, there's, a, there's a difficulty with Twitter and Facebook that um, there's a selection problem where if the whole pitch is... Uh, come to us, you know, if you don't like the moderation on Twitter and Facebook, you're going to end up with people who get banned from Twitter and Facebook, which is going to end up that that's a weird selection pressure. And it's also limiting, mm -hmm. um, you know, Twi uh, TikTok seems to have broken into the market by just like going in a diagonal line and doing something very different. Mm -hmm. um, you guys, uh, maybe that's going to be your answer. You're, you're trying to do something different. You're just trying to do Twitter and Facebook, but Better. So let me open that up to you and just uh, tell us what gets you excited about Parler these days, you know. So we are working on some interesting ways to incorporate what people are calling Web3 technology, uh, things with the blockchain into Parler. So I can't give too many specifics. We have some different ideas that we're working on right now, but I agree with you that the whole product offering can't be just, you know, if you don't like the moderation policies. Of course, if it's so bad over there, then people do come over. And of course, that's one of the reasons that we saw more conservatives come over early on. Conservatives were early adopters, even though we're a nonpartisan platform. Why? Because they were the ones who thought that they were treated so badly on the other platforms that they would seek out an alternative and kind of get away from the pull of the network effects as they call it, because everybody's on those other platforms. Uh, but no, that can't be in the long-term, the entire product offering, as you say, the market is you know, big enough to have a whole bunch of platforms, but 
the ones that are going to survive in the longer term alongside a Twitter and a Facebook are going to be ones who are offering something different, like you say, along the lines of a TikTok or, you know, maybe a clubhouse or something like that. So that's what we are working on now. Great. Well, um, Ari, uh, I'm going to circle back to Amy after you and let her have the last word. But uh, if you have any final thoughts or anything you'd like to share, um, please. Well, you know, um, I am interested and I'm certainly going to read uh, your article about the privacy uh, implications and stuff, Amy, because that sounds fascinating. Um, and I actually happen to think that uh, two things are true of privacy legislation. Um, one is that they probably privacy legislation, comprehensive privacy legislation could probably fix a lot of the problems that people both on the left and the right see. Uh, and therefore, uh, the second thing is I think that privacy legislation is actually probably the most fertile ground for some kind of meeting of the minds to actually craft something that could feasibly work uh, and actually address people's concerns. Um, so uh, I really like that you uh, are, are focusing on that, have focused on that and are focusing on that. And um, I'm, I'm curious to read your article, um, but you know, I, just, thanks for being here. This, this has been a really fun conversation. No, thank, thanks for having me on. Um, and I'm always happy to have one more reader. I kind of, this is my non-human baby that I gave to the world, essentially, I think the solution. Um, I'm concerned to do it at the level of constitutional jurisprudence rather than legislation, because legislation is only as good as the current round of legislators. And as we've talked about before, they're not always that great. And the whole point of having a constitution is not to have certain very important rights at the mercy of legislation, which doesn't have as many procedural safeguards. Again, no system is perfect. Our constitutional system certainly was not perfect, uh, but in a lot of ways it was quite good. And, and I would be eager to see any information shared within the conduct of, you know, within the performance of a legal contract, have that have the protection of a warrant requirement based on probable cause, based on particularized suspicion. That's normatively good, but also, as I said, I think it has grounding in you know, looking at the history of the third party doctrine in conjunction with the common law of contract. Uh, it's actually quite an easy solution. For me, I was always thinking of privacy. I wrote a dissertation on the right to privacy, uh, did my PhD in philosophy. And I thought of privacy as a state, not a right, but a state that you create using your rights to property and contract, primarily liberty as well to a certain extent, but property and, and contract. So this is you know, where I could be in the position, for example, we could talk about Roe versus Wade, let's just get really controversial, right? But I, I saw Roe versus Wade as a terrible decision because it was so pragmatic and based on privacy grounds, which is really, I think, not proper. You would do it, if anything, based on the liberty interest. And I'll have to defer to Akhil Amar, whether that was proper within the constitution, et cetera. But, you know, um, Alito's opinion might not have been that bad, even though I myself am pro-choice, right? Um, the the so-called right to privacy, I think, is perhaps a misnomer. Uh, so I'll be, you know, kind of 
provocative that way. Well, so yeah, well, anything, stay tuned for anything the next... that makes the government get a warrant in more instances, I am behind. So stay excellent. Tuned for the Another next convert episode where we uh, we'll just do the entire uh, desperate attempt to place Roe versus Wade in the Constitution. Should it go in the Ninth Amendment? The First the 14th Amendment. Amendment. Ronald Dworkin <laughs> made the case for the First Amendment. We could do the Equal Protection Clause. Sure, uh, sure. Uh, so, um, yeah. I mean, and, just, you know, maybe you would actually have to amend the Constitution in order to have it. Or hey, maybe you need to pass a piece of federal legislation. There's an idea. You know, right? Well, it does, it, does, it does seem intuitive that if the Fourth Amendment was meant to protect your papers and effects, and it becomes the societal standard that your papers and effects are now all in the cloud being held by someone else, that maybe the Fourth Amendment should follow your stuff there. Yeah. And how could it do that through a right to contract? But nobody really likes the right to contract or the right to property. So I am anachronistic as always. Oh, my right? gosh. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll have you on for the next one. And we'll talk Roe versus Wade and Lochner and everyone will love us by the end. Um, well, excellent. Amy, this has been so, so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome on anytime. Um, but I, I, I will follow through on my promise. If you have any other closing thoughts you'd like to give, please go ahead. Yeah, here's the stage is yours. Okay. So I would think always everybody should follow Jordan Peterson's advice in a limited context. I don't agree with him on everything, but I agree with him that paying attention and speaking the truth as you see it is so crucial during this era. And again, my focus and all the different things that I've been doing for quite a long time has been to try to prevent Orwell's 1984 from becoming reality, because I do believe that the ability to think and express yourself freely, and in addition, be able to create and maintain states of privacy for yourself to you know, limit the sharing of those things that are most important and dear to you. All of these are tremendous values. So if, you know, I can do anything to draw people's attention to the importance of preserving those values and, you know, again, paying attention and speaking the truth with respect to them being threatened, then I've done my job. Thank you, Amy. Amy's been a good sport. She's come on and she's she's honored the spirit of the First Amendment by having a good, robust conversation with us here. Um, if you like such conversations, please do uh, go give the Tech Policy Podcast that five-star rating wherever you listen. Uh, it helps us out. Um, and while you go do that, I will uh, prepare the next episode. I'm Corbin Barthold. I've been joined by Ari Cohn and Amy Peacock. This has been great. Thank you, guys. Until next time. Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org. <laughs>